The gospel lesson comes from Matthew 18. What do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. The New Testament lesson is taken from Acts 2. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our Old Testament lesson this morning is from Joel, and it will be included in the sermon in bits and pieces. In Genesis 32, after his famous wrestling match, Jacob was renamed Israel, which means strives with God. I'm glad the Bible implies that it's okay to strive with God, because I've been wrestling, not directly with God, but with one of his prophets, Joel. When Pastor David asked me to give the sermon today, I was happy to do it. But he also wanted me to continue this with the series on the prophets. We're near the end, and today's prophet is Joel. Now, I'm a professor, and we professors tend to be an arrogant lot. Thank, thank you for being polite and not agreeing. So I figured I'd make David happy, and, well, how hard could it be to write a sermon on Joel? There's that arrogance. Now, I had just read two great books, one on Mark and one on Paul, and had we used the lectionary today, there was a great passage from Mark, and, well, to make a long story short, I started reading the book of Joel with a bit of a bad attitude. And as I read Joel, my attitude didn't improve much, because I thought, and I still think, that Joel has some pretty messed up theology. The problem is I'm me, a theological amateur, and Joel was, well, a prophet with his own book in the Bible. I told you we professors are an arrogant lot. We don't know a lot about Joel. He was a prophet, was probably closely connected with the temple in Jerusalem, and most likely lived around 400 or 350 B.C. Although those dates are really a best guess and might be off by more than a century. The book of Joel starts with locusts. Lots of locusts. A locust is an insect closely related to our grasshoppers, only they swarm. I've never seen a swarm of locusts, but in May 2004, on a visit to my mother in Cincinnati, I was right in the middle of a mass emergence of 17-year cicadas 
part of brood 10, the great eastern brood. My mother's oak tree was covered with cicadas. A single one of her hostas had dozens of the large insects. They bumped into you as you walked outside. Their chirpy singing hum was loud even with the windows closed. We visited the Cincinnati Zoo, where many of the animals had gorged themselves with cicadas. Monkeys were picking up the ubiquitous bugs and popping them in their mouths. A peacock, free to wander among the zoo's visitors, pecked and gobbled them off the walkways. Cicadas survive to breed because during an emergence, there are too many for their predators to eat. The creatures that eat them get so stuffed that they can eat no more. In such an event, there can be more than one million cicadas per acre. I returned to Cincinnati in August, and my mother's yard reeked with the smell of dead, rotting cicadas that covered the soil of her gardens. But although they can be overwhelming, and as their corpses rot, quite disgusting, cicadas are harmless. Joel's locusts, however, were anything but harmless, and they make my cicadas seem few in number. A swarm of locusts can contain trillions of the insects and can consume millions of tons of plant life each day. They eat crops and leave the lands barren. Listen to Joel's description in chapter 1. Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust has eaten, and what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, over the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation, that is the locusts, has invaded my land, powerful and innumerable. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and splintered my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches have turned white. So terrible are these locusts that Joel likens them to the coming of the day of the Lord. From Joel chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful army comes. Again, that's the locusts. Their like has never been from of old, nor will be again after them in ages to come. Fire devours in front of them, and behind them a flame burns. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, but after them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. So numerable and terrible are they that Joel says the earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Imagine an insect swarm so dense that the sun, moon, and stars cannot be seen. The people were suffering and knew they would starve. And who sent the locusts? Joel writes that God did. They are God's army. 
and that bothers me. A God who causes natural disasters is not consistent with the loving parent who takes in the prodigal son, is not consistent with the shepherd who, losing only one of his flock, goes out in search of that one lost sheep, is not consistent with the loving, forgiving God that I have experienced. We must avoid blaming natural disasters on the sins of the victims. In early 2010, after a powerful earthquake devastated Haiti, the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, television evangelist Pat Robertson caused a fury when he stated that God was punishing the Haitians for a pact with the devil. Religious leaders across the United States cried foul, and rightfully so. Both our theology, Jesus teaches us of a loving, forgiving God, and our science, we now have a good understanding of the causes of earthquakes and locust swarms, teach us not to blame the victim. The theological ideas expressed by Pat Robertson and many others lead to a distorted, unchristian view of the world. The goal of preaching, it has rightly and as tritely and rightly been said, is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Jesus cared for the poor, the weak, and the victimized, and chastised the rich and powerful. Now too many preachers and too much of our society as a whole comforts the comfortable and afflicts the afflicted. We are taught that if you are poor or sick or weak, it is your fault. And similarly, if you are wealthy, successful, or strong, it is your reward and you have earned it. That is not the preaching of Jesus, who in Luke chapter 6, the famous Sermon on the Plain, says, Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. And also, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Joel then calls on the people to repent, and I am with him on that. Yet even now, says the Lord, in chapter 2 of Joel, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We do need to repent. But that that prophetic voice is not needed when we suffer from the pain of a catastrophe. It is needed now. We need that prophetic voice calling us to repentance when the few wallow in rich luxury while the poor suffer. We need that prophetic voice calling us to repentance now when we turn a blind eye as children paid a few pennies a day, work in the factories that make our clothing and our goods. We need that prophetic voice calling us to repentance now when we walk down the street and will not look the homeless man in the eye and see Christ in him. I've been harsh on Joel, but after his call for repentance, he writes of forgiveness and restoration. I will remove the army from you, The threshing floors shall be full of grain. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And then write some of the most beautiful, sublime words ever written. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, 
I will pour out my spirit. Communion with God, even for the lowliest. Jesus would say, especially for the lowliest. According to the book of Acts, which we read earlier, part part of the book of Acts, Peter quoted these words from Joel on Pentecost and said they were fulfilled. I wish the book of Joel ended there, without wonderful outpouring of the Spirit on all, but it doesn't. And I would have hoped that Joel, having prophesied God's forgiveness and God's anointing the people with spirit, would then accept this forgiveness and forgive others in turn. But alas, Joel chapter 3, the last chapter of the short book, is a diatribe against Tyre, Sidon, and Philistia. The book ends with the line, I will avenge their blood, and I will not clear the guilty, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Who am I to argue with a prophet? Should I just give up? No, I will not. I will wrestle with God. Or, as I think it is more accurate to say, with Joel. I encourage you to read the book and see if you can see more good in the ugly parts than I can. I hope you succeed. As for me, I will cast my lot with a later and greater prophet, Jesus of Nazareth, who preaches good news and forgiveness. I hope each of you can feel the Spirit, dream dreams, and see visions of wonder and goodness as did those disciples gathered on Pentecost. And I really think you can. I also hope that we never have to fight starvation at the hands of a giant swarm of locusts. But if we do, I hope we don't say that God sent it. Thanks be to God for mercy and forgiveness, and not for wrath.